joy to be gathered all together in one service, to be able to see some friendly faces and people that maybe you don't normally get to see because they attend another service. I see many of you with name tags. I think that's great, and I just want to let you know, um, I didn't put a name tag on, not because I feel like you all should know me, but um, you, you heard people say things like, public speaking is one of the most terrifying things people can do, right? You've heard that kind of thing out there. I've actually even heard people say that next to death, public speaking is, is right up there. Well, I don't have that fear, obviously, it'd be odd if I did, but for me, the fear I have is public handwriting. Yeah, so like if you, if you have to watch me write in public, it terrifies me. So whenever I see, so if I go to party, if I go anywhere that has a name tag, I do everything possible not to put a name tag on because my handwriting is like chicken scratch. So that's the reason I don't have, I know I'm not supposed to work through my issues through the pulpit, but that's why I don't have a name tag is because I have a fear of public handwriting. And my staff know that very well. So that's why I don't have a name tag this morning. By the way, don't pay attention to Zeris. Uh, we, we're putting together a new website and we needed some real photos of real people, and, and I don't like pictures that use like stock photography of other people, so we're just taking pictures of our people. Um, our support staff said, so it's really important, Rick, as you start this Sunday sermon, be funny. I was like, well, then that ruins any chance that I'm going to come up with anything funny. So let's, let's do a, a great dramatic pose. Okay, here we go. All right, there we go. That one's for the website. We good? All right. Um, <laughs> Hopefully, you are in First Chronicles 29. If you haven't already guessed it, First Chronicles 29, 11 through 18, is a prayer. It is a prayer of King David at the end of his reign. Now, obviously, most of you know David. David is a very, especially through our study of First Samuel, I hope it was a very encouraging study that we learned that David was many, in many ways a good picture of us. He led a, a life of faith, a life of challenge, a life of victory, a life of heartache. You know, with David, his blessings were only matched by the pressures and the challenges that he lived in his life. King David was one of the most powerful and well-known men of antiquity. As a matter of fact, if you were to visit Jerusalem today, people still will visit at his tomb 3,000 years later. David is the original kind of rags-to-riches story, isn't he? A shepherd boy who becomes the king. A man who knew God like few others ever did, and a man who failed God like few others ever did. A man who stood strong against armies and giants, yet a man who fell before beautiful women and the demands of his children. He was a poet, a warrior, a king, a friend, a shepherd, an adulterer, a tyrant, a coward, and everything in between. Like so many in the Bible, he is not one-dimensional. You cannot just have one glimpse of him. You cannot either lionize him or demonize him. David is as complex a man as anyone in this auditorium this morning. David is a picture, a beautiful picture of grace made ugly by the stain of sin. Yet God was at work in this man as he is in all his people, ancient or modern, corporately or individually. God is relentlessly perfecting those he so generously loves. 
And here is this man. It's actually the last prayer of David. It's one of his last official acts. Right before his son Solomon is to succeed him to the throne, he leads the nation in this prayer. So in one sense, it's a very important prayer as far as prayers go because this is David moving on from the scene. But the fact that it's also not just David's last prayer, the fact that it kind of ends the book of 1 Chronicles is also a very important fact. You see, the, one of the goals of the book of 1 and 2 Chronicles was to explain to the people of God the exile, right? The exile was uh, 586 B.C. When, when Assyria and Babylon had decimated the lower ten kingdoms, and finally in 722, and then finally in 586, the, the remaining Jews were taken off into exile into Babylon. And years later, they had come back into the land, and the chronicler's job was to explain why did that happen. In other words, 1 Chronicles was written well after Israel got taken into exile and brought back into the land. And so some people believe that Ezra the scribe wrote it. Now, we're not exactly sure exactly if it was Ezra, but we do know that the writer was probably either a Levite or a priest simply because he had access to the temple records. And we know that because the book of 1 Chronicles references all the, all the scrolls that they were using to put this together. You can see at the very end of chapter 30. The goal in the comp compilation of the Chronicles was to illustrate that when God's people sought the Lord and they lived a life centered on His words, they as a people flourished. Likewise, when people dis detach themselves from the glory of God and seeing themselves as His creation live for His glory and centered their lives on themselves, they floundered. And the exile was the perfect example of that. And now that God in His grace had brought them all back to the land, the chronicler wants the people of God to know, learn the lesson, learn a God-word life, and not just the people who are returned. The chronicler wanted all people of God to learn the same lesson, to have a God-word life. In a very real sense, the recording of this prayer and the placement of it in First Chronicles at the very end of it is an attempt to actually fulfill what David prayed in verse 18. I don't know if you heard that when Elise read it, so let's look at it briefly. Verse 18, as David is winding down this prayer, he says, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. And so the fact that the chronicler highlights this prayer and puts it at the very end was an attempt to crystallize David's prayer. Lord, don't let us forget this. Don't let our intents and our purposes drift away from you. Direct our hearts towards you. In short, this is a prayer and a message to God's people about what a Godward life looks like to maintain the blessings and the flourishing of God's presence amongst His people. And that's why it's here. Friends, if you want to be blessed, if you want to flourish, if you want to live life and experience life the way God intended, and who doesn't want that? This is as relevant an issue then when it was recorded nearly 3,000 years ago as it is today. The answer is you have to live a life that is Godward 
that is God-centered, not self-centered, not towards your own purposes, but towards God. This is the message of First Chronicles. And so from this ancient prayer from 3,000 years ago today, the message is the same. And David's prayer lets us see three elements of what a Godward life looks like. Okay, so if this is what David's praying, what does a Godward life look like? And we see three points in our passage this morning. Number one, that a Godward life sees God correctly. Number two, as a result of that, a Godward life sees itself correctly. And then finally, as a result of those two, a Godward life sees its need correctly. And so let's look at them one at a time. Number one, verses 11 through 13, a Godward life sees God correctly. Friends, if you've ever wondered how David could live the life he did. If you're familiar with the life of David, you probably have to be thinking that question. With all of its challenges, with all of its tragedies, with all of the strife, with all of the war, with all of the pressure, with all of the turmoil, how did this man pull it off? Right? If you read the Psalms, you read the almost crushing pressure that David lived as this king. How did he do it? Well, here's a huge glimpse of how he pulled it off. Friends, you know, lit, I mean, literally today, we have an expression of someone who faces and overcomes overwhelming odds, right? David versus Goliath, that's the expression. It literally comes from his life. So how did he do it? Verse 11, his view of God was massive. His view of God was simply massive. Did you notice he says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness, is the power, is the victory, is the majesty, is the glory. David cannot find enough nouns to describe who God is. And notice, friends, David is not using adjectives. It's not because Hebrew didn't have any adjectives. They certainly did. He's not saying, God, you are a powerful God. God you're a God, you're a victorious God. You're a glorious God. Those would have been adjectives. David is using, defying the conventions of grammar, he's using nouns. He says, Lord, Lord, yours is the greatness. Lord, whatever is greatness, that's yours. Lord, whatever is power, that's yours. Whatever is victory, whatever is his majesty, whatever is glory, Lord, that's you. You are the sum definition, the sum total of those realities. Friends, David had a massive view of God. How did he live the life he did? How can we have a Godward life? It begins with having a view of God that's actually worthy of God himself. Friends, that's the first. If you don't get that, if you can't get beyond that, nothing else I say makes a difference. How we have a Godward life, it begins with making sure your view of God is worthy of God. That's a radical statement, friends. So you got to ask yourself, well, what is your view of God? Is your view of God this massive? Is your view of God this massive? And he says, you are exalted as head above all. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. That's a really, really interesting thing for the king to say, isn't it? The king recognizing who is truly king. And he makes it very clear that it's God himself. He is the king. And friends, this is just very radical because rulers and emperors and kings of antiquity, they themselves claim to be God. They claim to be deity. 
and against the conventions of the time, here's one of the most powerful kings. He gets it. I'm nothing. God is the king. And, and you might think, well, that's just those people. Nobody thinks that way. Well, my mother, she remembers a time where her God walked the earth, and she could point to where he lived when she lived in imperial Japan. She would tell you that's where the God lives. So this is not some far-off and, and people of antiquity that nobody thinks like this. The empire of Japan, when my mom lived there, she could point to you and tell you where the God of their nation lived. But here's a king who gets it. There is a king, and it's not me. But friends, there are two statements that David makes that I think it's important for us to see. Look at that uh, verse 11. It's the second half of verse 11. All that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. But look what he does with that. It's the second half of verse 12. In your hand it is to make great and give strength to all. So David says, all that is in the heavens is yours, and it is in your hand to give strength to all. Friends, what an encouragement. Friends, listen to what David is saying. This God who owns it all is also the same God who freely gives it all. You see that? He says, this is the God who owns it all, and he's the one that gives it all. Some of you need to hear that because life is hard. You need to be reminded that the God you worship, he's the one that owns it all, and he gives it all. It's like Chris reminded us during the prayer, we've been given all that we need. Some of you need to hear that because life is fearful. And you wonder, do you have the resources necessary to make it? Well, the Bible says you do in Christ. The Bible says you do in God because he gives it all. All of us need to hear that because it is true. This was David's view of God. Is it our own? Friends, God's name is only matched by his generosity and overflowing benevolence toward those who love him. David knew this, and so should we. So he, he prays this, and the chronicler writes this down. Now, I suspect that most of you would agree with David's description of God, wouldn't you? Right? That's just, in a room like this, in a church like this, most people here would agree with David's description. The question isn't whether or not we agree with what David says. The question is, why then does not it affect my life like it seemed to affect David? Right? If I were to ask most of you, nobody would disagree. You wouldn't say, yeah, he's greatness, he's victory and power. I'm not so sure about the majesty thing, though, but the others I'm okay with. No, most of you say absolutely. So the question isn't whether or not you believe it. The question is, why is it not affecting me and gripping me and arresting me like it clearly did David's life? So let me give you three possibilities that might, that, that might attribute to the fact that God's greatness in your life is sometimes merely white noise. Number one, it could be just simply because of busyness and distraction. When I was talking to the staff elders this Tuesday about this text, we're talking about this Sunday, and we're talking about, man, how often we see, we see what David wrote, and that is actually who God is, but why doesn't it arrest our lives like him? And one of the guys said it brilliant, and I wrote it down. I forget who said it. Maybe it was Tim. Maybe it was Adam, Jordan. Maybe it was me. I don't know, but here it is. The busyness of life is a constant threat to the awesomeness of God. The busyness of life is a constant threat to the awesomeness of God. Of God. Now, obviously, it doesn't mean because we're busy that God objectively is less awesome. What that simply is saying is that everything in our lives seem urgent, don't they? 
The kids got practice, the kids' education, or the boss wants me to do this, or I've got to take care of this. And so running around and trying to get everything accomplished. But friends, urgent and important are not the same thing. Urgent and important are not the same thing. And if we let the urgencies of life push us, we will miss out on the things that are important in life. Think for a moment, uh, Luke chapter 10, when Jesus is sitting down in someone's home and there was Mary and Martha, and Martha was busy trying to get everything ready, maybe get the food prepared, clean up the house, whatever it might be, and there was Mary just dialed into what Jesus had to say, and Martha finally comes over and says, don't you care? I'm like doing everything, and Mary's just sitting there listening to you. In verse 41, Jesus says to Martha, Martha, you are troubled and anxious about many things but she's chosen the one thing that's necessary. We live in a world that is full of busyness and distraction, but so little of it it is the importance and the significant. So the first thing that makes us to miss the the, the awesomeness of God is the busyness of our lives. Secondly, number one. Number two, being caught up in the trivial being caught up in the trivial, friends. That, that if I could describe one thing about our cultural time, it is that th- this is us. Friends, can I just say, if you spend more time on social media than contemplating the attributes of God, you don't have to wonder long why your soul is withered and small. And, and, and I remember, I'll never forget when I was a pastor at this last church, one of my campus service guys came in looking kind of distracted, and I said, Jonathan, what's going on? What, what's something bothering you? You look like you're not here. He says, well, I've been thinking about what to put on my post. And I, and I, 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 I never even come, I never think about what I'm going to put on my post. And maybe I ought to because I just put whatever. But here was a young man, a sharp young man who was seriously distracted for 30 minutes. I asked him, how long have you been thinking about this? 30 minutes. To what to put on a social media post. Friends, if you spend more time thinking about how to craft your next post than how to craft your next prayer, there's your answer why God is not arresting you with his greatness, right? And guys, we, we live, and um, actually this is the third one, so let me give you the third one. This third one may be the result of busyness, distraction, and obsession with the trivial, or it actually could be the cause of those two, and that is this, not being intentional about being blown away by God. Not being deliberate about being blown away by who God is, right? And friends, I mean, you know what this is like. We, we, we live in a society where we take the amazing for granted every day, don't we? Let me just demonstrate this to you. There's a couple of images. You guys are going to understand. You can appreciate this. If you don't know, friends, the young people, that's a TV. Yes, look at that. It's got a, a, do, a knob on it, and it's got dials for contrast and brightness and all that. That's a TV. My kids, most young people have grown up never knowing that a TV is not something you mount on a wall, right? A TV was used to be you put stuff on it. That's a television. Try mounting that on a wall, right? <laughs> and, and yet, we were just not blown away. Or just, just by TVs. Here's another one. That's not a typewriter. I was asked by a younger person, is that a typewriter? That's not a typewriter because there's letters on it. And they t- I told them that was a phone, and you know what they said? 
How do you call 911? You, you actually have to go all the way from the nine? Yes, that's how it goes. And by the way, there's no cable on it, but that doesn't mean it's a wireless device, right? That thing got plugged into the wall. I mean, there is an expression in our society uh, of how we take for granted the amazing all the time. You call it, you know, first world problems, right? So I poured my cereal into the bowl without checking to see if we still had milk. We didn't. Oh, cry me a river, right? Oh, here's another one. My treadmill's broken. Oh, so I have to run outside. Here's my favorite one. We just don't get it. I, I, I took such a long shower this morning that the hot water ran out. Really? This is funny, but I know, especially with the cereal one, that it hits me at home, but how much of us are like this? The amazing things, and by the way, in comparison to what's coming next, these are kind of trivial. But we, we do say these kinds of things, so then how can we then appreciate when you see a flower and the color and the aroma or when you see a full moon or a beautiful sunset? How can we then appreciate when we're all around us, but we see the ocean, we see the trees, and we see the deserts, and we can't appreciate the things we can see that we're faced with every day. We're never going to be amazed by the simple reality of the cross because we are just not being deliberate about being blown away about some of the most important things in our life. Friends, a Godward life sees God correctly because it takes the time to do it. It's not wasting precious time on the trivial. That's so fill up our lives, and it's being intentional in every day, in every way. When you do those things, I think the natural result of that is the second point about a Godward life, and that it sees itself correctly. Do you notice, David? Look back at the text. What is David's response after he's been saying, yours, O Lord's the kingdom. You're the greatness. You're the power. You're the victory. You're the majesty. What's the natural response? What does David say? What's his question? Right there at verse 14. Who am I? The natural response of seeing God correctly is seeing yourself correctly. Friends, this isn't even the first time David has asked this question. David actually asked it three times, and every time David asks this question, it is in response to God's abundant generosity to him. So look here, 1 Samuel 18, 18, and David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? When, When David realized that God was exalting him, he said it to Saul, but the same idea was there. Why would God do this? 2 Samuel 7, 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And later in the book of Psalms, as David is is pondering the world around him in Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, he says, what is man? It's the same question. Who are we that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Friends, a real evidence that you have a Godward life is recognizing that everything good, including material blessings and success like we see here in our text, and human kindness is a result of God's gift, God's grace to us. This is what the New Testament reminds us, James chapter 1, verse 17. It says that every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The gift of Christ is supremely the reality of this gift that we see. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 15, Paul writes, thanks be to God for his inexpressible 
gift. Friends, get this. Back to our text. Get this. Even the generosity that the people here are showing in 1 Chronicles was inspired by God's grace. So let me set this up. Jordan briefly touched on it. What is going on here is that the people of God were called. David wanted to build the Lord a temple, a beautiful temple, a home for him. But David was denied that, not because of sin, not because of somehow he failed, but because God's will wasn't for David to do this thing. And so David wanted to set up Solomon and his son, so he made the arrangements to get uh, timber from Lebanon and Tyre and bring in workers, and they needed funds to build it. So he went to the people, and the people gave abundantly and generously. Out of, they just gave and gave. And David is saying, even all this was inspired by you. Look at verse, the second half of verse 14. And of your own have we given you Verse 16, O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we've provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. And David points to to two specific realities that, that prove the point that God was doing something amazing at that time. And you see it in the metaphors David is using. He says, for we are strangers. We're sojourners. And our days on earth is like a shadow. Now, most of you, you guys know what it's like to be a stranger, right, in someone's home. It kind of feels a little bit uncomfortable. There's not the security of things that are familiar or the comfort of certainty. You're in a strange place. There's not the security of routine, a sense of place or belonging. You know that sense. A sojourner has the same kinds of concepts built into it with the added idea that there's a destination and a place that they have to go to. So whatever they might have now is actually even more important to them, right? And that idea of sojourner actually comes from the patriarchs. The patriarchs were called sojourners in this land. But David said, you are strangers, you're sojourners, and yet even though you're on your way, and so therefore sometimes these things are more important, you gave anyway, and you gave, and you gave, and you gave. Friends, what's a shadow? I talked to my kids about this this morning. What is a shadow? A shadow is something that is temporary. It's something that, that is something that you cannot grasp. You cannot grab onto it no matter how hard you try. It's just one shade of color. It doesn't give you any details and thus is a poor representation of the reality that it's reflecting, right? And, but yet all these words, stranger, sojourner, shadow, describe these people. But here's the amazing things. But for a moment, but for a brief moment in the lives of the people of God, they got it. They got it. Because, because they were strangers, because they were sojourners, because life was a shadow, they gave. And that's why David prayed like he did in verse 17. Take a look at it. David says, I know, God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. In the uprightness of my heart, I have freely offered these things, and now I have seen your people who are present here offering freely and joyously to you. There was a moment of time when God's people got it, and they were blessed beyond belief. Friends, what do most people do when they recognize that they're strangers, that they're sojourning, that life is a shadow. What do most people do? 
they grab onto it because it's fleeting, and I don't know if I'm going to get any more, and I don't have any security, so they, they grab tightly. But see, the people of God, David's saying, David's saying, you know you're strangers. You know life's a shadow. And instead of grabbing it like the world around us, you did the math correctly. You did the math correctly. We're effervescent. He's eternal. We're momentary. He's majestic. We're temporary. He is titanic. We're shadow, but he's substance. You got to be out of your mind to think I'm not going to live for that. But you see, when we do the math, we do the exact opposite equation. These things are passing quickly, so I got to grab onto it while I can. And they missed it, but for a moment of time, the people of God got it. And it showed, and they were just giving it away. You see, verse 14 to 16, friends, this is a story of grace. This is a, a kind of picture of God's work and our response to the gospel that God gave, that God gave to them and allows them to see clearly. They saw it because we're shadows, because we're strangers, because we're just passing through. Live for something else that matters. Don't double down. They got it. That's what the gospel does. It opens our eyes and it transforms us to live different than the culture around us. And it all comes from God in the first place. Keep in Chronicles. Jump with me to the New Testament. The book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul talks about this, this beautiful same kind of dynamic taking place. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friend, whatever good thing I might bring, I can only bring because God gave it to me in the first place. Whatever thing you might bring to the Lord, you can only bring it because God gave it to you in the first place. Back in First Chronicles here, our context obviously is, is financial provision. That's exactly what's going on as they're building the temple. But this truth can be and must be extended way beyond that. It must be extended way beyond that. What can I give God that he did not already give me? My health, my talent, my ability, my time, my children, my life. What is mine that was not given to me? What is yours that has not been given to you? Are you going to latch onto it because it's your shadow? Or are you going to realize because I'm shadow, this is effervescent. I want to live for something that has substance. And for a beautiful moment in time, they got it. And the chronicler knew it too, and he wanted future generations to get it. This is exactly why they went into exile because they did the math backwards and realized because we're shadow and strangers and sojourners, we gotta do all we can to get it now and forget God's principles, they're so counterintuitive, and they were sent into exile. But when they came back, they got it. And David knows, he knows from personal life experience how fragile this amazing ability to see reality clearly and you living in light of that reality is. 
And so he concludes his prayer that a Godward life would see its true need correctly. Look at that in verse 17 and 18. When we read 17, he says, 18, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep forever such purposes and thoughts in the hearts of your people and direct their hearts toward you. He says, Lord, you test the hearts, and we're good right now. Please keep us this way. We're good right now. He says that, and that's why they're so rejoicing. I'm there, he says, in the integrity of my heart, and the people too. But David knows how fragile a thing that is. So he says, Lord, do that work. Help them to see, keep them there, friends. That is a good prayer request right there. And by the way, 1 Chronicles 29, 11, 18, that's probably a good way to process how you approach God in prayer in general, isn't it? First, you see God correctly. His greatness, His power, His glory, His victory, His majesty. First, you see that And then because you see that, you then see yourself correctly. I'm not all that in the bag of chips, God, I realize. I'm just shadow. I'm a stranger in this world. I'm a sojourner passing through like millions before me, like millions after me. And because now you see God and now you see yourself correctly, you actually begin to see what your true needs are and they start shaping the way you pray. I think most people get that order backwards, don't we? Don't you? The right order is that we see ourselves and our desires through the filter of God, and then we truly see our need. But I think the way most people do that is they determine their needs by looking at God through the filter of their desires. Friends, our true need is that we would see God for who He is, and realize how trustworthy he is to live in light of that. Without this, without this view of reality, our options are pretty bleak. Friends, this feeling like that we're strangers in the world, feeling that we're kind of in exile, that we don't belong, this is a universal experience. It's not just what the Bible talks about. This is the universal experience of humanity when I was doing my, my PhD work, I was studying the existentialists. This is why the whole existential movement came about. They all feel that we're floating around, we're unhinged, there's nothing really of substance, nothing matters. When Nietzsche said, we killed God and got rid of God, we also realized, and they were the honest ones, there's no meaning now, there's no purpose to life, there's no point. And those who may not feel that experience. You say, well, I don't know. I I have friends. They never feel that. That's because they're too busy being busy, being distracted, focused on the trivial, not being intentional. But sooner or later, reality hits us. And one of two things is is what we're going to do, is we either take the path that so often has been taken of, of nihilism. You don't use that word, but it's like, what's the point? What does anything matter anymore? It's all going to the toilet. Forget about it. It doesn't make any sense. Or we go the opposite direction where most of our culture goes, and that's the the direction of hedonism. You only live once, man. Live it up. You got to get everything you can out of this life because this is the only life you got. We don't use the words nihilism and hedonism. We might, you know, but, but that's what we do. That's how we live. And these come at us in thousands of different ways, and most people swing between one or two of those poles. And honestly, Christians are not much different in the way we 
we parent, the way we relate to one another, the way we treat our marriages, our career choices, how we use our time, how we spend our money. It, it wouldn't be on the poles of nihilism or hedonism, but they are on the poles of maybe like fear, self-protection. I'm doing everything to keep myself and my family safe or the pole of fun, self-fulfillment. I'm doing everything I can so to enjoy life. That's not much different than the non-believer. It's not much different than being a nihilist or a hedonist. We just don't use the same words. What David is praying, what the Bible constantly keeps putting out is to encourage people to view life through the lens of biblical faith. It's only that when you see God correctly and you see what you are correctly, can you see the true need correctly. And by the way, then you can actually engage and enjoy the life that God has given to you the way you were intended to. You see, faith brings that balance. Faith brings that balance that, that this life is neither pointless nor the main point. You see, so people have a hard time realizing that. They think it's one or the other. It's not an and or game. It's and also. This life is not pointless, but neither is it the point because we are strangers and sojourners. This life is shadow, but it doesn't mean that life is meaningless and valueless at all. This life is to be cherished and embraced because this creation is God's good creation given for us to enjoy. But because of its fallenness, it is shadow, right? But it's shadow because in comparison to the true life that this is a pale reflection of, don't get attached to it too much. You see, that's why he's saying that. Without this perspective of biblical faith, we make the danger of either making too much of this world and therefore are not much different than the non-Christian, or we make too little of this world and we don't care about the world and the non-Christians in it because, you know, we got our ticket to heaven after all, right? You see, biblical faith makes us realize this world matters and it helps us not making an idol of it or the things of this world either. And that's what we need to have. A biblical faith to see God, to see ourselves, and to see the true need, without which we either make too much or too little of the world. We either ignore the world or we make an idol of it. But the chronicler and David said, Lord, this is how we keep it balanced. We have a Godward view of life and sees you, sees me, and sees the world correctly so that we might live in the presence of God's blessing and fullness where he is king of all. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and in as many ways, I just rejoice with David. Lord, you have blessed your people at Christ Community Church. We are not without our struggles. We are not without our blindness. We are not without our failures, but you have been gracious to us to hear the gospel proclaimed by these young people in the baptism pool is an evidence of grace. To see a young girl read the word, bring conviction to her heart, which translates to obedience in her life, is an evidence of grace. Father, to be in a congregation where people want to hear your word, want to obey and love you and love the world rightly is an evidence of grace. But Lord... 
Would you keep us in that place? Recognizing what a precarious and fragile place it is because we tend to latch on to this world, not realizing it's just shadow. Help us latch on to the true substance. And that is you, most clearly seen in your son, communicated to us in the gospel. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.